We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you this morning for the blessing to be here and to worship, to grow to be more like Christ, to learn more of the Word, to be a blessing to one another, to encourage one another to love and good works. And Lord, I pray that our, our hope is the same, that those things will be accomplished in us and that we're here for good reasons, not just for mundane or or. or I don't know, wrong reasons, I guess I could say. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts, our desires, our motivations. Cause us to be repentant of sin. Cause us to be confessors of our sin. And cause us to understand that Jesus Christ, your Son, cleanses us from all sin by his blood that he shed upon the cross, dying for us and rising again. We thank you that he did that in accordance with the Scriptures and gives us good hope through grace in his name. Amen. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 23, reading our scripture portion today. Paul has given a defense before the crowd and then was able to use his Roman citizenship as a way to avoid getting beaten. It's kind of strange that they thought they could beat the answer out of people, uh, you know, Innocent or guilty didn't matter. They'd get some answer, I guess. Um, but he was able to avoid that by being uh, a citizen. And uh, they respected that. The soldiers did there who were responsible for flogging him. And so he was going to appear before the Sanhedrin. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, that's a true statement. It's not that he's saying I've lived perfectly, but I wonder if you could say I've lived in all good conscience. If you have a good conscience or if your conscience is bothering you about something that you need to change. But at this statement, it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Quite an insult there in a way because the whitewashed wall is like what the Lord Jesus said. You know, you're like uh, whited sepulchers, tombs full of dead men's bones on the inside, but nice and painted white on the outside. Looks sharp, you know, but stinks on the inside. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. Now, why would he not know? A, he's been out of touch for a little while, not in, in the politics of it. You know, he's a former student of Gamaliel, but also because the guy wasn't acting like a high priest should act, was he? Nope. Uh, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he admits that there is, uh, he was out of step with that uh, in Acts 23, verse uh, 5, because of that kind of confusion that he had with that situation. Verse 6, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, and that was a true statement, a hope and resurrection of the dead, first Christ, and then all those that are Christ after him at his coming, uh, at the rapture, and then later on in the final judgment. Uh, he teaches that in 1 Corinthians 15. All will be raised from the dead. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, 
But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So you get an insight here into the Sadducees. They were what we would call the liberals, theological liberals of the day. You know, we don't believe in angels. We don't believe in uh, resurrection. Uh, you know, what's left? I mean, if you don't believe in anything supernatural, then the whole Bible goes away pretty much. Uh, verse number 11, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews band together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. That's a bad kind of fasting there. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Talk about overwhelming force. They were going to protect their prisoner. That's a good thing. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Well, the timeline's a little sketchy there in his letter, but we'll, we'll let it go for now. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and I also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Now, what the fellow this Claudius Lysias should have done is done what Pilate should have done. There's no charge worthy of chains or death, then what? Let him go. Done. Simple. Don't bother the next guy higher up on the food chain. No need. Uh, Just carry on. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Such is the reading of scripture today and the narrative of the life of the apostle Paul. All right, Genesis, please, chapter 46. Um, In Genesis, uh, we've come to the section in chapters 37 to 50 that deal mainly with Joseph, also with Jacob. And uh, now we're seeing uh, Jacob, or Israel, is moving to Egypt at the call of his son, at the insistence of the Pharaoh, in fact, of Egypt. What uh, what What an event. After the revelation of Joseph to his brothers, now, he says, I'm Joseph, last time. And the emotion of all of that, they communicated that information back to Jacob in the land of Canaan. And there was quite a bit of uh, time after that point until the death of Jacob and his son Joseph. And we'll look at the chronology in the middle of our message today 
hope it's not too boring for you, but it's of some interest, I think, and kind of educate you as you read through your Bible here. Um, but the, the uh, last section of Genesis covers that history and prepares us for the book of Exodus, a, a events of a few hundred years later. As I considered what happened to the land of Egypt during the famine, especially in chapter 47, I came upon an interesting source. Uh, and I had thought about this some in years past, but it just dawned on me again to say maybe this would help you. You, you might wonder, how is it that the Pharaoh was able to accumulate so much wealth and power into his possession? And uh, there were cycles of this across Egyptian history. But one of the reasons why he was able to accumulate such power, at least in this around the 1800s BC, is because of a man named Joseph. Land ownership in ancient Egypt cycled between private, monarchical, and feudal. A strong king could take advantage of harsh situations such as famine, buy lands from private owners, and make them a property of the crown. A weaker king, on the other hand, would have to buy services from strong lords by giving them gifts of land. And that first option, uh, the strong king option, is effectively what happened under Joseph's rule. In chapter 47, we'll see that. Although we should not consider what he did to be the actions of an evil dictator, he was a benevolent ruler over the nation of Egypt, but it did serve in the long run to strengthen the hand of Pharaoh and his power uh, and his wealth over the nation. But before we get there, we'll look in chapter 46. And chapter 46 basically is about Jacob moving from Canaan to Goshen in Egypt. And it starts out saying this way, So Israel took his journey. Israel here is now used as an individual, not as a collective noun, speaking of Jacob, uh, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. I pause there just to state this seemingly obvious sort of thing, maybe not obvious to you, but uh, he started out on this journey in a perfect way. How? He started by stopping. He started by stopping to offer God worship. And I want to encourage you, when you start a new venture, to start it by stopping. Do you understand what I'm saying? Stop and thank God. Stop and pray and ask God for guidance. Stop and entrust yourself to Him with your new home, your new job, your new place, whatever it is, your new school work, your new situation in life, start by stopping and thanking him. And then it goes on and says in verse 2, Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father, Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts or the, the wagons, whatever it was, that the Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, his firstborn, and then the sons of Reuben. And it goes through the whole list of these. Hang on to that just for a moment. God first, though, revealed to Jacob that it was okay for him to go down to Egypt. He might have feared going down to Egypt, uh, that he wasn't supposed to do that out of, because it would be disobedience to God. And indeed, in some cases, it would have. In chapter 26, he tells, God tells Isaac, don't go down there. Uh, you remember what happened when Abraham went down to Egypt? Didn't turn out too well, did it? That was back way back in chapter 12, uh, verse number 10, when he went down there, again because of a famine. Because, uh, but it was okay this time because God had ordained the nation to go there and to grow there and become large in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. 
But he also planned that the nation of Israel would go there and would suffer bondage and slavery and hardship and be delivered by Moses. Do you know why he did that? Because God used those negative experiences to mold the nation into what he wanted it to be. So remember, there are a number of times in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus where the scripture talks about the people of Israel having a certain demeanor about themselves with regard to strangers or foreigners. Look with me in Exodus 22, which is the first of those, just after the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 22, verse 21. It says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And this is repeated in Exodus 23 and verse number 9. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God permitted them to fall into very difficult times to change their hearts so that they would be compassionate. You know, they could have responded and say, well, those Egyptians, they got us, so we're going to get other people back. We're going we're to give it to them. We're going to show them who's boss now because we're superior now in our land. No, God said, you don't oppress the stranger because you know what it's like to be oppressed as a stranger, as a foreigner, as a slave in bondage in the nation of Egypt where you came out of. And they had to tell their children that as well so their children would understand in years to come. Other times going to Egypt was not right because it was done out of fear and not out of faith. Do you remember in Jeremiah after the uh, exile, Jeremiah is still there and the people who are left behind come to him and say, what should we do? Should we stay or should we go to Egypt? And uh, they didn't ask the question honestly. The text reveals that to us. Rather, they had already in their hearts, we're going to get out of here. We're going to Egypt. We need to get away from Babylon as far as we can. And Jeremiah said, you are not to go. If you go there, God is going to send Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to the doorstep of Egypt, and he's going to get you there. Don't go there. In other words, trust the Lord, stay here, dwell in the land, be fed on what God provides for you, and trust in Him. It was not their motivation to go down by faith. So sometimes, in some contexts, going down to Egypt was good. Sometimes, in other contexts, with other motivations, it was bad. But this time, it was part of God's plan to go down to Egypt with the baby nation and cause it to grow into a mighty group of people. Jacob went down, as we see from the rest of chapter 47, or almost the rest of it, the middle section will say, with 70 people, and then started growing from that point. Uh, Look at the uh, little appendix in the notes there. It should be back, and I think it's on page 7 on your notes. Uh, And I have it here as well. And... um, So what I just do is I take what chapter 47 said and just lay it out in a tabular format uh, so you can see it. What I have done here is I put Jacob at the top and then I've given some abbreviations for all of the mothers of the various children. And so that I don't have to repeat their names over and over, I just put the little, uh, uh, you know, first letter of their name to stand for their whole name there so that Leah, for instance... You see the L before Reuben. She was the mother of Reuben, also of Simei, Levi, uh, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. And so the text goes through there and gives a number, sums them all up. And if you check that out carefully, you'll see that indeed they, those Hebrews could count you know, and, uh, and add up. They did. There's no errors here. Uh, and you kind of have to be a little sharp because there's a question of do you count Jacob Uh, What about Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim who are already in Egypt? You get the idea. And so uh, I won't go through all these names, uh, challenging to read all of them. But uh, you see all uh, 12, you see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dinah, 
in addition, in Gad, Asher, Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. I, I say Dinah was an addition because she wasn't one of the 12. She was an extra. Uh, and then Naphtali at the end. So the total adds up to 70. Plus, it, it tells us here toward the end of this section, uh, verse 26, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body besides Jacob's son's wives. So we don't have them listed. All of those were 66 persons in all. And so then if you add to the 66, Jacob, Joseph, and his two boys, then you come up with the total of 70 and 27, verse 27. The sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Okay, so that appendix takes care of all of that for you. And uh, we can carry on with the uh, exposition in chapter 46. I, I did a little math here. You can check me out on this. But uh, if they went down to Egypt with 70, what would happen to them after 400 years? So depending on whether you take a 2% or a 3% population growth rate, you get some tremendously large numbers. Uh, of people who would result from that. And it seems somewhere between 2 to 3% annually on average was what actually happened because there were hundreds of thousands apparently of people who came out, not apparently, but in the text tells us, at least of the men, and then more than that with the rest, uh, hundreds of thousands of people who came out of Egypt at the end of the 400 years uh, that they were there. So do a little bit of exponential math there for me, all of you uh, school-age mathematicians out there. Do some figuring. And uh, that reminds me of Chuck Allen, you know. He would always say, you're doing some figuring, are you? Um, but, uh, yeah, check that out and see. The, the numbers, uh, in fact, at 3%, it looked like there would be over 9 million people there resulting from those 70. Now, obviously, that's just a, you know, mathematical number doesn't take into account all the things like infant mortality and, and different things like that. But in any case, you get the idea. It's certainly feasible, especially because in Exodus chapter 1, listen to this, it says in Exodus 1 verse 7, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. They were a very fertile bunch of people. That's what that's saying. So 2%, 3%, certainly easily doable on an annual basis or average for them. Now, notice verse number 5, would you please? Um, sorry, verse number 4. God speaks to Israel both individually and as a corporate entity. I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again. Now, did he bring him up again? Well, kind of. Dead. We find out later. But I think he's really, God is really projecting forward to the end of the time. I'm going to take you, Israel, down there, and I'm going to bring you all, Israel, back to this place. And then as far as individually it goes, and, it's, and uh, the Scripture says, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. You know what that means? Close his eyes when he dies. So he will be with his son, uh, be in the presence of Joseph, the son he had lost decades earlier, and his son will be there attending him at his death not the other way around, like he thought for all those years had been the case, that he outlived his son. No, his son would outlive him. And so they went down to Egypt in the carts that Pharaoh had sent for the purpose, the 66 other people and the wives of the sons uh, also, so there's somewhat more than 66, um, and we've given that information in the, uh, at the end of the notes there. In verse 29, uh, it says, Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Can you imagine the reunion? 
I mean, there's a little emotion there in that verse, isn't there? Oh, think of it. You've, you've missed somebody for 23 years or something. I did the math. I can't remember exactly what it is, but that long of a time. Somebody you didn't want to be away from. Some people you want to be away, <laughs> away from them for 23 years. Hopefully not too many, but, uh, you know, this, this situation was very difficult for them. You know, no FaceTime, <laughs> no, no, no instant messaging, none of that sort of stuff. And a uh, great reunion. Joseph fa- uh, savors the moment with his dad, fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. What a, what a situation that is. What emotion. Joseph then went to report this happy occasion to Pharaoh and prepares Pharaoh for what his brothers are going to say when they're interviewed. So he's a, he's a master kind of politician here as well, interfacing between the people of God and the secular or pagan politician that he has to work with uh, in the kingship of Israel. Um, and so they moved to a place, uh, verses 28 to 34, moved to a place called Goshen inside of Egypt. It was a place that was good for uh, their... Uh, livestock, and so he instructed his brothers for their interview with Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would look favorably on them and give them the land of Goshen, which was good for their livestock. Um, And their, their answer to Pharaoh about their occupation, shepherding, would confirm that Pharaoh would want them in Goshen. So they uh, said that in verse 34, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we also and our fathers. Uh, that, uh, and then the idea is that you, may, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So evidently, Goshen was helpful because it was away, maybe some distance from the main dwelling places of the Egyptians in the region, which uh, meant that they could be somewhat separated by distance. The uh, Egyptians didn't like shepherds for some reason. Maybe they thought they were dirty. Uh, I don't know exactly. Nor did they like eating with the Hebrews. Remember, we saw that back a couple of chapters uh, earlier. And so the Jews were blessed to have a new home. But they had a problem because the dislike of their neighbors was not a very auspicious beginning. To Pharaoh didn't have any problem with the Jewish people. He welcomed them to come down. But what was it? What's the difference between him, a good statesman apparently, and the people? They didn't like the Jewish people. So it wasn't a very promising welcome. However, the benefit of this was that it meant that Israel's offspring would be able to be somewhat separated from the Egyptians. And why is that good? Well, they don't need the paganism the false god worship of the sun or the frogs or the flies or whatever. They needed to be separated from all that. So it actually, to, to kind of be cloistered off was sort of helpful for them so they would have less opportunity. Now, they had plenty of opportunity, and it tells us that many of them brought up their little gods from Egypt when they left the land. So there was idolatry that was present there in the nation after all of those years. Now, let me just pause since we're at the end of chapter 46 just to mention a couple of chronological notes for you. Um, When you're reading the book of Genesis, it's helpful to kind of think, okay, where am I at? So I've treated this in, in kind of backwards chronological order in the notes, but let me just walk it forward for you from the earlier part of Genesis. So from Genesis 1 through 11, do you know how much time is covered by... Genesis 1 through 11. Well, it's about a time period of a couple of thousand years, more or less. Okay, You can add up the years in the chronological genealogies and find out that there were 1,656 years from the beginning up until the flood. And then there's some time where we're not, you know, it's, we don't have it, at least I don't have it totally buttoned down as to uh, what happened uh, after that, for a little bit of time, up through Genesis 11, but it appears, based on what we can, you know, estimate, that we have somewhere around 2,000 years. Maybe it's a little more, maybe a little less, whatever. But that's all right. So the first 11 chapters cover a long span of time. You with me? Don't fall asleep on me now, okay? Um, 
Then we have a period of time after that from Abraham uh, up to the birth of Isaac, which is 25 years. Okay? Now, some, one of you mathematicians out there, you're going to add up these numbers, okay? So you have 25 years from Genesis 12 through 16. And then after the birth of uh, Isaac, up until Sarah's death, you have 37 years more. So Isaac is born after 25 years, 37 more, you have Sarah passing away. And then you have a time period in Genesis 23 to 25 of 23 more years. And that covers uh, the time uh, up until, well, just before, uh, well, look in 25, where uh, Isaac gets married and then he has his family, has his children at the end of chapter 25 and the twins are born. Okay, Jacob and Esau. So you have 23 more after that. And then it's funny because Genesis 25 and after that just covers 77 years, just lickety split. Jacob ends up being 77 when he deceives his father. Remember we said he was old enough to know better than to do that, but he did it. Then uh, up until, uh, you know, he goes to... uh, Laban, and then comes back, you've got 31 more years, Genesis 28 to 37. And the way that I calculated that was 14 years he worked for Laban, remember, seven and seven, and then he worked six more. But during that time, Joseph had already been born. And remember how old Joseph was when he was sold? He was 17. 17, my one son's age here, sold off as a slave. So 14 of 17 um, we get our 31, and then uh, we have 22 more years after until he sees his dad again. Uh, and then uh, quickly just going over this, the last four or five chapters cover another seven decades, 71 years. So when I added all those years up, I know I went through those probably too fast. You didn't have your calculator ready when I started, but uh, you've got 286 years. So Genesis 1 to 11, 2,000 years. Genesis 12 through 50, 286 years. So that helps kind of locate you as you're reading the book of Genesis, just to kind of orient you to where you are at. So a little bit about the uh, chronology. One of the interesting things about the chronology of this is that um, Joseph, it tells us later on, was 110 when he died. Do you remember how old he was when he began to first serve the Pharaoh? The first pharaoh? We went over it last time, or maybe the time before that. He was 30. 30 to 110. How many years is that? He served for a very long time. Now, of course, did he serve up until his 110th birthday and then he died immediately? Maybe he had some time of retirement, so to speak, but... It's interesting because we said he, he said, I become a father to Pharaoh when he was 39, which I took to mean that the first Pharaoh that he served during the first seven years passed away and his son became the Pharaoh. Well, his son is going to be younger, perhaps younger than 39. And then every Pharaoh that happened after that, if, they, if he didn't reign for 80 years, would be younger yet than Joseph. And so Joseph would be a father, an advisor to several pharaohs along the way. That, to me, is very interesting. Kind of like Daniel, who went as a young man to Nebuchadnezzar's court, and then he was there for maybe 70 or 80 years and assisted Nebuchadnezzar and his son, his grandson, and then beyond that into the reign of Cyrus. It was important in that place. It's quite amazing. Uh, just to think about that chronological situation. So that brings us then to chapter 47 and the five additional years of famine. Let's read. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father, my brothers, and their flocks and their herds have come down. And he took five of them, verse 2 says, from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What's your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds. Okay, followed their coaching. 
and Joseph, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. So they're putting themselves in the place of servants to Pharaoh. They're honoring him. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. What a generous man he was. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen, and if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. You know, our, our Egyptian people don't like to deal with livestock, so I've got some guys that you know maybe aren't the most competent. I'm going to take I'll take some improvement in that department if you can help me out. Then Joseph brought in his father. By the way, why did he want those competent men? Because he knew that what he had given to Joseph had prospered. So maybe what he gives to one of his brothers will prosper as well. Uh, He brings Jacob in. Jacob, the elderly man, who also is older than Pharaoh by probably nearly a hundred years. Read on. It says, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? This to me is kind of funny. You know, you're you're supposed to ask people's age. We were talking about that yesterday. And in fact, you were correct, Thurman, about, about, about Harmon's age. That's an inside joke. Okay. Um, but here he asks, I think the situation is that you've got this young Pharaoh. He's pro- maybe he's 30. Maybe he's 25. Maybe he's, I don't know what he is. But he's looking at this guy like old and wrinkled and saying, how old are you? How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Listen to this. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. He's a little bit depressed, you think? And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So true. If you had a, you know, an ancestor live to 180, and the ones before that into the 200s, and the ones before that into the 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 800s, you're thinking, man, 130? I'm dying young here. It's crazy. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. So it's an interesting human story about his age. Obviously, he was advanced in years by his appearance. The the rigors of life on this earth uh, treated him as they do all of us. But notice this, that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Do you remember what Hebrews 7, 7 says? Without contradiction, the Bible says, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here is a man who is brought up on a cart from the land of Canaan, well advanced in years, although he thinks they're few, and he's standing or sitting before a young Pharaoh and he passes a blessing on him. That's That's a significant thing. That is a significant thing. Um, he's going to pass a blessing and a word of blessing on to all of his children here later on in the book of Genesis. We'll get to that. But there's a couple reasons why. First of all, because he's older. Don't despise the wisdom of age and don't despise the blessings of those that have gone before you. And maybe I should say this. Fathers and grandfathers, you might want to stop and think about how you're going to pronounce a blessing on your children when you come to toward the end of your days. Do you know what I'm saying? Don't just like, now ah, whatever, kick the bucket and you know, leave the, leave the inheritance to the children. Think about what you're going to leave as a heritage for your kids. 
for your grandchildren, for those that come after you. In this case, it's recorded. Here he's, he's giving a blessing to Pharaoh, not only because of the difference in age, but because of the difference in spiritual status. Jacob has a blessing to give from God. Bless you, my son. May God work in your life. He had a real blessing to offer, unlike Pharaoh, who is not a believer in the God of Israel. So for those three reasons, Hebrews, the age, and also the fact that he was a follower of God, he had a real blessing to pass on to Pharaoh. And God blessed Pharaoh in one of those, remember, collateral blessings that we talked about? By accident of him being near to Joseph, Pharaoh was blessed. They might not have realized it, they might not have known it, but they were. They did realize it to some extent, politically and economically, but spiritually perhaps. Who knows what Joseph told Pharaoh in his conversations with him over the years. The famine continued for five more years, and the Egyptian people ran out of money. They ran out of livestock. They ran out of land. And then they had to sell themselves to Pharaoh and to Joseph in order to get enough grain for them to live during the rest of the years of the famine. Why did they have this trouble? Perhaps they didn't save up on the side during the years of plenty. Uh, They may have not believed that there was a famine coming. I mean, if, 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 if you heard some guy say, you know, this is going to happen, and then the government institutes some massive new tax on the basis of that, probably at least half of our nation is going to say, oh, they're a bunch of crooks anyway. I don't believe anything they say, right? Maybe they, they didn't believe that a famine was coming. Perhaps a 20% taxation level did not help them <laughs> to be able to save. In any case, they exhausted their money, their livestock, their land, and then they gave themselves up the slaves to continue to buy food. And as a result, all the land of Egypt became government-owned. The only exception was the land of the priests. They owned their property by title from Pharaoh, which was kind of an early tax exemption, if you think about it. We talked about tax exemption earlier this morning. But then they bought the seed and they owed 20% of it back to the government as a tax that could, and they could keep the rest for themselves. So they were able to get that seed, but they had to give 20% of it back to the government again as a tax. So this was necessary because to ration scarce resources, some kind of financial transaction has to take place. The moral difficulty, though, with this method, I'm just kind of commenting on what I see here, the, the moral difficulty with the method used by Joseph is that he was selling back to the people what he took from them in the first place. It's like the government taxing you and then saying, you've got to pay to get it back. Well, I just gave it to you. Now I've got to pay for it again? An argument can be made, I think, that he should have given the grain to them freely because it came from them and perhaps give it to them in a way proportional to the amount they put in. So if they put in, you know, 20 bushels in one year, they get out 20 bushels, and then they do with it what they please. They eat some of it, they plant some of it, they sell some of it to people who didn't put in as much, and then the wealth is distributed throughout the nation instead of being accumulated by the pharaoh. But such is the difficulty of any wealth distribution or redistribution program, isn't it? How do you do it so that everybody has enough to eat? Perhaps Joseph's hands were tied for some reason and he had to follow certain customs or practices or laws or whatever. So we don't know about all of that, but um, certainly something that needs to be thought through. By this point, at the end of chapter 27, uh, sorry, 27, 47, the scripture tells us as, jo- as uh, Jacob is getting nearer to the end of his life, verse number 29, the uh, time drew near that Israel must die. He called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. 
Do you remember that's what Abraham did with his servant when he said, put your hand under my thigh, guarantee me you're going to go and find a wife for my son Isaac from far away, not from the pagans here. That was a ritual that was used to make a solemn promise. Um, and he said, look, I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. I want to be buried with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. So he's expressing some worship there to God. So as I close this morning, the story here is a story of the salvation of a large clan of people. Not spiritual salvation, but physical rescue. Remember, I think you can read through this and think, well, what's the big deal? You know, famine is a real danger. We don't know famine because Americans are fat. We have too much food, you know? Uh, sorry to say it that way, but it's just true. What are you laughing back there for? Because I'm just saying it like it is. I mean, we're, we, we have an obesity epidemic, diabetes and all the rest of it, right? We have too much. But famine was a real danger. Listen to some of these statistics. Three million children die annually from malnutrition, a lack of essential nutrients. Others say that one person dies of essentially starvation every four seconds in the world, 20,000 in the United States as of a couple years ago. How can this be? I mean, those statistics just boggle my mind. We hear about hunger, child hunger in the United States. How? With food stamps and all the rest, the trillions of dollars that are poured into that. It doesn't make sense. I can't, I can't, I can't compute the math to figure that out. There's got to be something wrong, okay? There's certainly irresponsibility in the government and fraud and waste and all that, but there's a lot of irresponsibility on the part of parents. If you make a baby, <laughs> you feed the baby. You do whatever it takes to get that baby the nourishment that it needs. And you don't be skimping, you know, and making them those, one of those malnourished kinds of children that we're reading about here. In world history, it's even worse. Millions died in Ukraine in 1932 and 1933 in a famine man-made by Stalin. The great Chinese famine in 1959 to 61. Not too long ago. Many of you were alive during that time. Almost all man-made cost the lives, <clears throat> it's not known for sure, of between 15 and 55 million souls. Completely unnecessary. How many people are on the planet right now? Eight billion people. Are we feeding most of them? Yes, and we're throwing away a lot of food too. So I think we can feed all 8 billion people, at least feeding them enough that most of them are still living, right? This planet, God has designed to be able to support more than 8 billion people. You know, population reduction efforts, totally unnecessary. God said to be fruitful and multiply, not to kill and destroy and demultiply. You have as many kids as you want to have in your family. The more the merrier, the more the blessing. Don't be fearful that you know, the earth is going to run out of resources. People do plan their whole lives around that false uh, idea. You know, that, oh, we're not going to have kids because <laughs> we're, that's going to be environmentally insensitive. That's disobedient to God is what that is. It's sad because there's so much land in this world. If you just look around and notice, there's a lot of farmland, my friends, that can make a lot of food. No reason for people to starve. And strange how so many millions have starved under human-caused situations like we mentioned here. The situation for Israel here is also somewhat ironic. Where were they leaving? They're leaving the promised land, a land flowing. Well, it wasn't flowing right now. But they were going from a land that would be flowing with milk and honey. Neither Egypt at this point because of the famine, but they had grain. They traveled instead to a land which the Israelites would later call the land of fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, garlics, and onions. 
Oh, if we could just go back there to that plenty, they said. But their return to the land of milk and honey was set by God to be four centuries in the future. Now, we may tend, too, to focus in this section on Joseph, and rightly so, but God does some strange and wonderful things for the entire clan of Joseph, not just for Joseph. You know, it is strange that they would end up in in the land of Egypt, but it's wonderful that God would save them by the action of a benevolent and powerful dictator named the Pharaoh of of a nation nearby to them. And sometimes God, too, will take you on a path that you do not anticipate. He may direct you on a path or rescue you by a way you would never expect. God uses all kinds of people, even unbelieving people, to bless his children, even like he did here with Pharaoh. So maybe some strange things have come about in your life. Maybe some strange path has become your portion. But remember what God is doing and how he has used Joseph over a span of decades to save alive 70 souls and a whole nation, which would end up being millions just a few centuries later. Let us pray. God, thank you for your sovereign control of all things. Lord, help us to be rejoicing in the word that we've read here today as kind of narrative as it is and mundane in some ways. We've learned some principles. We've seen some interesting things. We've seen how you provided for your people. And Lord, we know that you're the same God now as you were then. We are grateful for that. Lord, provide for your your little ones here. If it's necessary, take them up on carts sent by someone else to a new place, to live in a new home, to, uh, to be in a new situation, to have provision that they didn't anticipate. We just uh, ask that you would help us to be trusting in you and listen very carefully to your word, whether we should, quote, unquote, go down to Egypt or not. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.